You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. One of the biggest misconceptions I think people outside the body of Christ make about Christianity is that you have to have it all together to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And nowhere in that love story does it say you have to be perfect to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It says you have to be perfect to be reconciled to God the Father, and Jesus does that on our behalf. But it never says that perfection is a prerequisite for relationship with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I'm of the opinion that our God tends to love people who are a hot mess because there's so many stories about people who are aware of their own incapacity in scripture. As a matter of fact, I wanna take just a short break and any of you who have it all together who are perfect, y'all can go ahead and leave and go get lunch early today. I was gonna say, if any of y'all stand up, somebody needs to kick you in the shins. Um, I was at a church recently teaching on grace and afterwards this woman said to me, I'm so glad you brought that message about grace. And I thought she was kind of playing and I said, you are? And she said, yes, some of these women need to hear it. (laughs) And, And again, I thought she was punking me and so I said, yeah, I bet some of them do. And she said, yes, I no longer need grace. I'm fully sanctified. And I was like, would you give me your husband's number? Because I'd really love to ask him if you don't ever make mistakes. Y'all, it's just foolish when we try to pretend like we are perfect. That's not the prerequisite. Jesus says, I want you to be needy. I want you to recognize you can't make it by yourselves, but perfection is not a prerequisite for relationship with me. If you brought your Bible, turn to Mark's gospel. I'm gonna read a short story. So even if you didn't bring your Bible, you can look on with a neighbor. If they look stiff, just whip out your iPhone and you can go there. But we're gonna look at a story in Mark chapter one. Before I dive into this story, it's a short story. I wanna talk about the historical context of Mark's gospel. Because we've also got a lot of misconceptions about Mark's gospel. Because when scripture was canonized, and that's just a fancy theological term that means when this literature was placed in a a list, a literary format, when scripture was canonized, they listed Mark as the second gospel account. The word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, means the good news. Well, they listed Mark as the second euangelion. But actually, chronologically, Mark was the very first literary compilation of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So it's the very first first gospel account. It's the first compilation of our Savior's earthly life and ministry. Do y'all remember who wrote the gospel according to Mark? Yeah, Mark. That wasn't a trick question. Mark... (laughs) Mark wrote the gospel according to Mark. However, for one of these gospels, we've got four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For a book to be considered a gospel, it had to be an eyewitness account. And you remember John Mark was not among the original 12. So there had to be a narrative voice in Mark's gospel account that actually came from the original 12. So Mark was typing on his iPad in Starbucks, but somebody else was telling the stories as he recorded this gospel account, this first chronological gospel account. Do you remember who the narrative voice is of Mark's gospel? Peter. 
I love that you say PETA, P-E-T-A-H. We say Peter in, in English, in American. I love y'all's A-H's. Everybody keeps calling me Lisa Hoppa. And I'm like, yes, it just sounds so much more poetical. So you've got Mark, who's typing the gospel. You've got Pete, who's narrating the gospel. Most of us know Pete's backstory. We always talk about him at Easter. I identify the most with Peter because he was a train wreck. He was always stepping in it, always speaking before he prayed. He was just a hot mess of a disciple. You know that he's the first Benedict Arnold that he threw Jesus under the bus at Jesus' most significant point of incarnate need right before the crucifixion. You remember the story. You've probably heard it since you were a kid. If you grew up Baptist, you've seen this flannel graft. You remember that Jesus begged Pete to stay awake, told him he needed him to be a faithful friend. And Peter betrayed him not once, not twice, but three times, vehemently and vulgarly, threw Jesus under the bus just in case the crowd wasn't convinced that he wasn't a disciple. He used some expletives so that they would be convinced that a man that talked that dirty couldn't possibly be a disciple. So we know Pete's backstory. We know that he was a hot mess. Very few people know John Mark's backstory. His backstory isn't quite as well known by Christians. Before we look at the story in Mark, I want you to head to the right to the book of Acts. So I want to give you just a little backstory on John Mark. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When he, Luke, Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts. So this is Luke and he's talking about, he's talking about uh, Peter here. He says, when he, Peter, realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so what we find out from that little passage in Acts is that John Mark's mama was among those few Christians who were organized in the second half of the first century and had home churches. So after Jesus is resurrected and goes to sit at the right hand of God the Father and he leaves behind these few followers and he says, you will have power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. So that starts the organized church. So I don't care what stream of the church you come from. If you grew up, I grew up half Baptist and half Pentecostal. So I'm wiggly when I worship, but I have no rhythm. Some of y'all grew up Baptist, some of y'all grew up Catholic, some of y'all grew up Pentecostal. Regardless of the, the stream of the church you grew up in, if you grew up in a church that says that is the word of God and Jesus is the only way we can be reconciled with God the Father, then you can trace your spiritual DNA all the way back to these people in the book of Acts. They are the first organized Christians. They established the first church. John Mark's mama was one of the leaders. They had home church in her house. So John Mark, as a young man, as a teenager, he's literally watching these things happen. In his own living room, he watches Peter and Silas come busting in from prison and going, y'all aren't gonna believe it. We were just singing Hillsong worship and the chains fell off. <laughs> he's hearing these stories firsthand. A lot of New Testament theologians say that's probably why John Mark was picked to go on the very first post-resurrection missionary trip. You remember who went on that very first missionary trip, Acts chapter 13? Any Bible scholars in here? Did y'all do Bible quizzing 
growing up in Auckland, do you remember Bible quizzing? In America, it was like a game show. Bam, you had to hit the buzzer if you knew the answer. Not that we had any pride with it whatsoever. But anyway, we got all kinds of t-shirts. We're doing Bible quizzing. Acts chapter 13 talks about Paul and Barnabas. Went on the very first mission trip, evangelical mission trip. Well, they invited John Mark to go with them. He was just a teenager. But because he was in his mama's house, she was a leader, he was included in this first mission trip. They go on this first mission trip. Do y'all know how successful this mission trip was in Acts chapter 13? Y'all remember? Do y'all know what y'all means? I'm just trying to be a good guest. It's inclusive. It means all y'all is what it means. Everybody. It's a family term. The mission trip was unbelievably successful. People came to know Jesus, people got saved, people got healed. And so toward the planned end of the mission trip, Paul wanted to extend it further. And John Mark said, I don't wanna stay out here any longer with y'all. I'm tired of being at this nasty hotel with too many guys in one room. My iPad battery is dead. This is awful. I wanna go back home to my mama. Now I'm taking just the tiniest bit of liberty with the Greek, but that's real close to what happened. And so when they plan the second mission trip, this is in Acts chapter 17, and Barnabas says to Paul, Paul, I know John Mark kind of messed up on the first mission trip. He was kind of immature. He missed his mama. But I've been discipling him. We've been meeting at Starbucks once a week. He's really growing up in his faith. And I'd really appreciate it since he's a second cousin of mine. If you'd consider letting him come on the second mission trip, do y'all remember Paul's response? This is in Acts 15. Paul said, fat chance. Again, (laughs) tiniest bit of liberty with the Greek. But he said, no, he ruined the first mission trip. I don't want him on the second. And it says in the ESV in chapter 15, there arose such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over the issue of including this young man on the second mission trip that they parted ways. Now y'all, Paul and Barnabas in the early church were like the gospel beetles. I mean, they were a big deal, which means John Mark was like the first Yoko Ono. I mean, that's a huge deal to split up that partnership. And then in, in Mark chapter 14, verse, Mark, Mark chapter 14, verse 52, I think it is, we're, we're shown John Mark right outside of the Garden of Gethsemane, right after Peter has betrayed Christ. He is a young man also betrays Christ at his greatest point of need. Only it says he got so scared he dropped his cloak. I don't know how many of you have studied gentlemen's attire in the first century, but they didn't have Haynes his way, which means when John Mark dropped his cloak, he was buck naked. So Pete betrayed the Christ, so did John Mark, and he went a step further and betrayed him buck naked. So now let's stop and think in the sovereignty of God, he says, I'm gonna choose someone to record the very first gospel account, the very first compilation of my life and ministry. And in my sovereignty, I can choose anyone. I'm gonna set my favor on these two gentlemen who have totally blown it. I'm gonna set my favor on these two who most would say have totally sabotaged the right at spiritual leadership. Because what I wanna show through redeeming these men is that I'm not looking for people who have high capacity. I'm looking for people who have availability. I'm looking for people who recognize, you know, it's not really about my capacity. It's about his compassion 
So let me come empty handed before God and say everything I have, and admittedly it's not that much, but everything I have, I give to you, King Jesus. I love that perfection is not a prerequisite for relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not only not a prerequisite for relationship, y'all, it's not a prerequisite for leadership. Some of you have sat in the back of life because you think, goodness gracious, there's so many mistake chapters in my story. There's an abortion, there's a divorce. If these people knew what I did last year, these people knew what I did at uni, these people knew what I did last month, they probably wouldn't welcome me into this family over and over and over again in this book. God not only says you're welcome, he says, I can actually use you. Once you recognize you can't make it by yourself, once you recognize you need my forgiveness and my restoration, I can actually use you because people with a past actually give credibility to the gospel because the watching world will look at your life and go, how in the world could a woman like that or a man like that have that kind of peace after what they've walked through? How can they have that kind of hope, that kind of compassion? Surely they must have met with God because that doesn't make human sense. I love that God chose those two men to author this first gospel account. And the first story they record, true story of somebody having a personal encounter with Christ, just echoes the compassion that both of those men have received from Christ. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him. And Mark and Pete are talking about a leper coming to Jesus. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you could make me clean. Verse 41, Mark chapter one, moved with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I know because of the teaching in this house that it's not a surprise to you that leprosy is the oldest recorded disease in biblical history. And according to historians, usually leprosy left someone with their skin hanging off in shreds. Their, their hair would be bleached white. They would have lost most of their connective tissue. Leprosy is actually not a dermatological disease. It's actually a disease of the nervous system, but it manifests on the skin. So at this point, this man is horrifically disfigured. He's also socially cut off because in Jewish ceremonial law, it declares that a leper is not allowed to be around well people. It was actually incumbent upon them to cry out, unclean, unclean, everywhere they went because leprosy was a highly communicable disease. And so you couldn't touch someone with leprosy. My little girl's first mama in Haiti died of AIDS and my little girl has HIV. By the grace of God, my baby girl's HIV is undetectable. But when she was in Haiti and sick, the nannies would not touch my child. They were afraid if they touched Missy, they would contract HIV and then it would transmit to AIDS and then they would die and not be able to take care of their children. So I feel like I know a little bit of the stigma surrounding leprosy because it's much like HIV in our modern culture. So this man wasn't touched by well hands. He's actually not allowed to be in the city. According to ceremonial law, he's not even allowed to be in church. He's not allowed to be here worshiping with us. So he is relegated to a place of shame outside the city walls 
forced to beg to have anything to eat. He sees Jesus coming into the city and the leper cries out to Jesus, Lord, which is a huge deal, y'all. Because anytime you read the word Lord in the New Testament, in any gospel account, it always comes from the Greek word Adonai, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. In other words, that leper looks up, sees Jesus, and his response is not, oh, there comes a rabbi. I've heard that's a good rabbi. He's a really interesting teacher. I've heard when he preaches, people aren't tempted to play Angry Birds. That's (laughs) not his response. He doesn't look in Jesus and think, oh, my cousin sent me a Facebook message or an Instagram live post, and I heard this guy's a really good communicator. That is not his response. The way he responds when he sees Jesus is he goes, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the one that we have been praying for for centuries. I believe if there's any hope for me to get well, it lies with you, Lord, if... If, if you're willing, you could heal me. And so beautiful what happens next. My translation, the ESV says, moved with pity. What does your Bible say there at the beginning of verse 41? What does your Bible say? Y'all can call out. One says he was made indignant by the man. Does anybody says he felt compassion for the man? They have that translation. One translation says he felt sorry for the man. Any other English translations? Pardon? He was deeply moved by the man's condition. I believe there are five different English translations at the beginning of that verse. And all of those English translations come from one single word in the Greek, in the original text. The New Testament was originally written in Greek and a little bit of Aramaic. And this word in the original story is splagnitsomai. It's a Greek word, splagnitsomai. If it sounds familiar to those of you who are English speakers, It's the word we get the word splagna from, which is the root word for spleen. Splagnitsomai means from the gut, from the bowel of God. I want you to think about the context of the story. The Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, God's very own son, is coming into town. And on the outside of town sits a beggar who has skin that's hanging off in shreds whose hair is in dreads because according to Leviticus, lepers were not allowed to to keep their hair uh, tidy because they wanted to make sure that anybody who didn't hear them cry out unclean would recognize from them being dressed in rags and having unkempt hair that it was indeed a leper. You see that in Luke 17. Jesus recognizes from a distance a group of 10 lepers that Pastor Marie was talking about this morning. So people could recognize from a distance a leper. Jesus sees this leper. He's probably emanating a horrific stench because of the rotting flesh. He's completely ostracized, hasn't been touched by a well hand in probably years. He's outside the city begging for alms. He says to Jesus, if you wanted to, you could heal me. Jesus doesn't say, oh, bummer. Dude, you need a good dermatologist. That is nasty right there. (laughs) That's not the response of our Messiah. 
Instead, it says, Jesus says, oh, I'm willing. And from the guts of Christ, it's a visceral response. It's not a far away, removed response. We tend to sometimes think of God as a unibrowed librarian who's just waiting to smack us over the head with a Bible if we step out of line. Y'all, that's not who he is. That is not the picture he paints of himself. God paints himself as an up-close, intimate savior. He's right there in the middle of this man's whore. And he says, oh, I'm willing. I'm moved from my very gut. And then here's the miracle. It's so easy to miss. It says, then he holds the man after which he heals the man. Did you hear that? The chronology of that is profound. If, and this is heretical, but stay with me for just a second. Let's just say if uh, Pastor Scott came in this morning and he said, Pastor Lisa, you know, I went out last night and I, I had some bad sushi and I got leprosy. And I've heard you have the gift of healing. And so if you would heal me before service, that would be so cool. I would probably go, Pastor Scott, I'd be delighted to heal you. And then I'd say something along the lines of Wonder Twin Powers Activate or Shazam. And then after Scott's skin was clean again, after Scott didn't stink anymore, after Scott's hair was back in its normal, really cool place, then I would hug him like a brother and say, let's meet for coffee afterwards. That's not the response of our Christ. While this man was still filthy. He didn't say, go to a doctor and clean yourself up. He said, oh, I'm willing. And while that man still stinks, he's still filthy, he's still ostracized. Jesus holds him because he knows his disease is not just skin deep. He knows his heart is more eviscerated than his flesh. He holds the man and then he heals the man. Y'all, the compassion of our Christ is so much bigger. It's so much better than most of us dare to believe. We're so busy trying to be good, trying to justify the gospel that we've forgotten what it is to be needy. We've forgotten what it is to go, thank you, thank you, thank you. I couldn't get up this morning apart from you. Nothing in my life deserves your goodness. Thank you that you lavish it upon me. Those are the great spiritual leaders. The people who recognize it's not about my capacity. It's about his compassion. I was at a conference recently and there's a big group of women in the foyer. And I was drawn to one woman more than anybody else there because she was holding a baby. She had a baby and a carrier. And I've had baby fever for as long as I can remember. I was really, really foolish when I was younger. Uh, there was a lot of abuse in my background story. So I was very attracted to abusive men. And God really protected me from the men I was most attracted to. Don't look at the woman with the baby. I love babies in church. That is the sound of a miracle. I told the first service, if you give a mama with a crying baby a dirty look, I'm going to pray you get hives. Because that's just, I'm telling you, that's just beautiful right there. That's a miracle. I love babies. But I was so broken when I was younger that I was just real attracted to abusive men. And God protected me from most of the men I dated and the few good, godly Calebs 
older, that I, um, that I dated. God protected them from me because I was just so, such a mess when I was younger. So broken, so terrified of loving and being loved that I was really a train wreck. And so um, I, I know what it's like to feel like you're ostracized, to feel like you're not good enough. I know what it's like to go, there's no stinking way. God will ever give me a baby. But from my earliest memories, that was the hope of my life, that I would get one of those little clay handprints that says, I love you, mommy. So probably from about 30, every time I see somebody with a baby, I just gravitate toward that person. And this woman had a baby. So I walked up to her. I was one of the guest speakers at this conference, but I just made a beeline for her. I thought, I don't care about protocol. And I said, my name is Lisa. I'd love to meet you, but I need to confess I'm actually more interested in your baby. (laughs) And she said, well, my name is Molly. And then she gestured down at her son, who was six months old at the time. And she said, and this is Elijah. And when Molly said his name, Elijah woke up. You know, sometimes when babies hear their mama's voices, they just wake up. He woke up, and when he opened his eyes, I was like, what a pumpkin. What a cute little boy. He had the shock of white hair. You know how plain old white people, like I I feel like I should be an islander because I have that passion, but just boring white people whom we have little kids, usually no matter how much spit the mama uses, their hair just sticks straight up. And Elijah had just this like little mohawk of almost white blonde hair. He had huge blue eyes, just beautiful little guy. And my second thought was, I wonder if this has been a difficult season for Molly because it was also very apparent that Elijah had Down syndrome. And she began to tell me her story. She's actually older than I am. They have two grown kids. She didn't plan on a third pregnancy. But she said, Lisa, my husband and I believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, We believe that he orders our steps, as he tells us in Jeremiah. So we know that his plan for our family was to include Elijah. Then she went on and she got really honest. She wasn't inappropriate. She didn't share any dirty laundry. She just said, but it's been difficult. She said, since we brought him home from the hospital, I haven't slept through the night because Elijah hasn't slept through the night. She said, we're having some financial difficulties because Elijah has uh, an ongoing medical condition, some other problems due to his Down syndrome. She said, it's been a, a hard season. She said, we trust the sovereignty of God, but it has been hard. I so appreciated her honesty. I get so tired of the facades we wear in church. I'm like, we pretend like it's about us having it all together. The whole point of the gospel is we don't have it all together. We need a savior. I, I just so appreciated she was honest about that. Not maudlin, just honest. Well, the conference ended. I had talked to Molly a few more times and it was all over, just like sisters. after a few days, it's over. And I was standing in the foyer of the hotel saying goodbye to a bunch of women. And Molly came walking up and just sheepishly asked me if I would mind signing a book that she had bought. And I said, oh, I'd be delighted. And so I start to sign Molly's book. And while I'm signing Molly's book, the women I had been conversing with continued to chat. And I accidentally wrote one of the words they said out loud into Molly's book in black Sharpie. And I was like, oh, goodness gracious. 
you know, I've gone and just defaced her book and I like her so much. I feel terrible. I've written this huge mistake word in her book and I wasn't sure whether to scratch through it or out of books. It just seems so tacky. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, I remembered a verse that included the mistake word. And I was like, yes. So I wrote this verse through the mistake word, like I had planned the whole thing, you know, made it all kind of pretty, like a journal entry, signed it, closed the book, said goodbye to Molly. I didn't think I'd ever see her again. She lives several states away from me in America. We hugged, she walked away. Maybe 10 minutes later, the elevator doors opened and there stood Molly again. Obvious she had been crying. And she walked up and she said, Lisa, I need to tell you how that verse you inscribed in my book has impacted me. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I bet it wasn't even a verse. Um, Because sometimes I I get confused. You know, I'll see something on a refrigerator magnet and I'll write it later as a verse. And I get Zephaniah and Zachariah mixed up. And I thought, oh man, you know, I felt bad about the word. I bet it wasn't even a verse. And she said, do you remember on Friday night when I told you about Elijah and I told you it had been a difficult season, but we trusted God's sovereignty? And I said, oh, I totally remember. And she said, well, I didn't really tell you the whole story. She said, it hasn't just been a difficult season. This season has almost taken me out. She said, I feel like I can barely put one foot in front of the other. She said, I know God is sovereign, but I also feel like God is really far away. And I just feel like I can't handle the weight of my own life right now. She said, the last place I wanted to be this weekend was at a women's conference. She said, I just thought I can't do perky. I can't make the the small talk. And she said, my husband told me he felt like I really needed to come. So I made a deal with him and I told him I would come to this conference, but I wouldn't come with anybody. I wanted to drive by myself. And she said, the whole way here, it was a six hour drive and the whole way here, I've just been begging God for a tangible sign that he sees me, uh, that he hasn't walked away from me, that he loves me. And she said, the conference was fine, but as I was going back to get my suitcase just now, I was actually feeling disappointment because I didn't get that word I begged the Lord for. She said, the whole thing has been good, but I just didn't, didn't feel like God saw me. And she said, there were a bunch of women on the elevator and I didn't want to make small talk. So I just opened your book so I would kind of have a, a defense in front of me. And she said, when I looked down at what you wrote, I was stunned to see that the verse you inscribed is the exact verse I chose as my life verse when I was in Campus Crusade in college. She said, Lisa, I chose that verse as my life verse 25 years ago. She said, I haven't thought about that verse in forever. And out of all the verses you could have inscribed in my book, you chose that verse. And she said, I just sensed God's Holy Spirit on the elevator going, Molly, I am right here. Nothing in your life is hidden from me. You don't have to get it all together. Just lean into me. I love you. I see you. I'm right here. You are not alone. And she said, I just had to come back and say thank you. And I said, oh, Molly, it's a bigger miracle than you think. <laughs> and uh, I told her I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be a, a wise sage at that point. I, I didn't come up with something profound to write in her book. Y'all, my only motive, my only motive was to cover up a mistake. 
That's exactly what I was doing in that moment. I was just trying to cover up that mistake word so I wouldn't deface her book. But our Jesus is so kind. He's so compassionate. It says in Psalm 84, 11, he won't let us miss him. That's how kind he is. He used even my distraction as a bridge to embrace this exhausted, imperfect daughter of his and say, I got you. I'm right here. I'm not leaving you. You are worth it to me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.